Welcome, ladies, to the Real Estate Investor Show, providing inspiration, strategies, and insight to empower women investors to live balanced and financially free lives. Now, here are your co-hosts, Liz and Andressa. Hey, ladies. So on today's episode, we have Amanda Han. She is a tax strategist, a real estate investor, uh, author of two Bigger Pockets books on tax strategy. Uh, and we just had an amazing, amazing interview, like literally chock full of details for all of you. One of the things I think you'll get a lot from, from her in terms of as she gets into it is we talked a lot about retirement accounts. A lot of women are at the point where they're getting ready to retire or planning for retirement. Um, and, and it's a lot that can come at you. And we talk a lot about how you can, obviously we, we know self-directed IRAs are a powerful vehicle for our world of investing, but she actually gets into really good specifics around when to lend out of your IRA, when to become an equity partner. Um, and it's just really very strategic conversation around that, that uh, was, it was a really wonderful conversation. I think you're going to get a lot from. Yeah. And Amanda is super real, right? She's super real. It's not like you are a CPA, you do everything that you're like there. She's a person like you, Liz, and I. She also talked about short-term rentals, which is a big and common thing, becoming more common among uh, investors and cost segregation. It's a big word that we might think, oh, this is more for a syndication deal, large apartment complexes or commercial mm -hmm. deals. And it isn't, right? And she talks about how you and your small uh, deals, you can apply that and also the benefits for your passive investors. So you can't miss this. You can't miss this interview. Uh, I hope you enjoy it and let us know your aha moments and if you have any further questions, please uh, watch and or listen to it now and let us know how it did go. You're trying to close on your next rental. So why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. 
Welcome back, ladies. This is Liz. And this is Andressa. Welcome back to the Real Estate Invest Her show. We have a wonderful, wonderful guest on our show today, Amanda Hand. Thank you so much for being on with us and excited to jump into your story and all the amazing stuff you're going to tell our listeners. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Yeah, so Amanda is an investor, she's an accountant, she's CPA, everything, all things money. So we're going to get into a lot of good things uh, in a moment here. But as we'd like to do, thank you for being back with us. Thank you for being on this journey with us. We'd like to stay always on the road to financial freedom and doing it in a balanced way. So we always like to get connected to all of you. We can't see you physically, but we feel you. <laughs> and we want to share something that's coming up for us. And then we jump into our interview. So right, Andressa? Yes. Today's your turn. What, my, what right, do you take, have? Andressa and I take turns because we have so much <laughs> to just share that we have we to We beat turns. each other to get a turn. That's right. That's right. We arm wrestle. Virtually arm wrestle. No, we don't do that. <laughs> Um, although my son likes to arm wrestle. So speaking of my son, that's what I wanted to share. Uh, oh boy. All of you. <laughs> Always good stories when I talk about my kids, but you know, with, we, uh, we got hit with a pretty big snowstorm here in the Northeast and, um, and it came off of a weekend, right? So there's so, there's only so much TV and, you know, only so much TV and snow that keep, you keep your two young kids occupied. So, so with nothing else to do, I took out Monopoly the other day. And you gotta, yeah, love Monopoly with two young kids, you know. And my son's really getting into it. He's at the age where he gets it, right? So he passed the, um, I forget the, uh, where you get your salary, right? You pass the little, um, you know, place that you get your two hundred dollars salary. And he forgot to say something to me. I said, Zach, I'm gonna give you the two hundred dollars because it's your mm. salary. Uh. This, is, this is the last time I will give you the two hundred dollars. I'm not gonna remind you about giving you the money. You need to remind me. And if you forget. Guess what? You don't get the two hundred dollars, mom. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not in charge of reminding you about money. He goes, oh, okay, all right, all right. Next time, I'll, you know. And so the next time came around, and he reminded me. So I tell I tell all of you this because it reminded me the power of playing games with children. You know, we're all on this path of financial freedom, but we're all about creating legacy, especially women. And what better way to do that? I didn't think I didn't know I was going to teach that point. Right. But what a great point. What a great lesson that I and it was in the context of the game. And it wasn't like mommy's telling me what to do. I just was telling him the rules. I'm like, I'm not going to give you this money next time. <laughs> I'm like, but what a great. And I thought about it afterwards. I'm like, what a great lesson. Right. To start teaching him. You're going to lose money. Well, then you're going to lose money. That's on you, buddy. That's on yeah. me. I'm not, and what a great way to start that with a seven year old. So I just I encourage you listening. Right. Get get Monopoly, get cash flow for kids. That kind of takes monopoly on like steroids because it talks about assets and liabilities and all the good things that investors like all of us like to talk about. But it's such a great way, right, to get this conversation going. And, you know, I'm like, oh, I just taught a little lesson. I didn't even know I was going to teach. I thought we were just trying to pass the time away, quite honestly. You know, so anyway, I just share that because it reminded me of the lessons that can come out of a playful game versus like mommy's telling me what to do so yeah that's right what I got for today i had a very funny story because my son by mistake broke our tv and he's like Ooh. yeah you can get another one on amazon right i was like oh no <laughs> no <laughs> it, it, and everything for him is like a hundred dollars a hundred dollars is like a thing the, the top of <laughs> of the thinking process i was like oh this costs a hundred dollars he's like oh <gasps> A hundred dollars. I was like, yeah. And he's like, 
how about like chores? I could do some chores and I get a coin. And then we started talking. I was like, yeah, you're going to do some chores and get coins. Here's the thing, buddy. Mommy's going to get the TV and you're going to have to reimburse me for the TV that you broke. And he's like, oh, so he's, poor guy, he's getting like pennies and, and, and dimes. <laughs> You'll be 45 years old by the time exactly. you pay off that TV. But here's the thing. He, he said, what's going to happen? This is like Lorenzo's first like thought process. What's going to yeah. happen? He wants to know what's going to happen. He said to me, what's going to happen after I pay you the hundred dollars because I'm going to keep doing chores and I'm going to have more money. I was like, ha ha, then we're going to talk about it, right? You can either save for a bigger toy or you can lend money to mommy and then I'll pay you for that. She's like, and he's like, oh my gosh, that's cool. What toy I'm going to get or, or, you know, I was like, but here's the deal. You got to work hard, but you got to work very smart too. The, the, I'm not going to curse here, but the smart kid now is like, I did this chore here. I want two coins, not one. Yeah. I was like, yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so now he's already thinking about like, okay, this is worth three coins, not one anymore. I was like, Love I'm it. creating a monster here. <laughs> Yeah, That's exactly gonna... my nine-year-old too. He's a negotiator. So we started, I have the same exact story where it's like, okay, you get, you know, a dollar here, a dollar there. And then it's like, I think this is worth $5. No, maybe I should get $10. And I try to teach him, you know, the concept of like you say, saving and not taking all the money and just buying a toy at Target or something. So yes. um, I was trying to teach him the concept of, you know, when you put money in the bank, you earn interest. So now he's on this crazy mindset that he said, you know, I had a hundred dollars in the bank and now with interest, it must be $10,000. <laughs> sure. I like, that, like that way. <laughs> and it's lifelong, right? These lessons just keep coming up and you kind of have to have to up the ante as they get older. So uh, no, it's great. It's good stuff. You know, keeps you, keeps us on our toes because why are we doing all this? Right. To teach the next generation, right? It, it would be so sad to the, the you know, to, to my son to turn around and go, what do you guys do? What, what do we do? You know? So um, without further ado, Amanda, thanks so much for being on. And I'm sure you have a lot of great account, you know, uh, financial, uh, you know, suggestions too with the world you're in. So share with the listeners a little bit about how you got involved in investing. Yeah. Um, good question. So I'm actually a a third generation of real estate investors in uh, my family, but it's an interesting story. So my grandparents, um, uh, they were business owners and, you know, like a lot of business owners, they have real estate on the side. And so when I was growing up, I remember I would help my grandparents with apartment turnovers. You know, I would, my cousins and I would go there on the weekends and, you know, try to paint the house. It was so much fun. And, but, you know, growing up though, my family, my, my parents, my grandparents, they never really taught me to, be business minded or to do real estate, um, just the traditional route. You know, I think um, Liz, you said same thing. It's just, you know, going to school or, you know, getting a degree, getting a good job, which is what I did. And um, I think like you guys, I was handed the rich dad, poor dad book, which was such a turning point for me um, to, to be looking at, oh, you know, this is what people do. And in fact, that's what a lot of people in my family did, but I was never taught to do that specifically, mm. just really the traditional route of getting a job. And that's kind of 
um, for my husband, Matt and I, that was our first exposure to real estate. It, it just so happened at the time I, we were both working for a big uh, public accounting firm um, and I was in the real estate group. So all my clients were doing real estate and I, my job was to help them save taxes. But the strangest thing was, wasn't until I read that book where I internalized the strategies and said, hey, how come I don't do that? You know, before mm. then it was just, oh, this is my job to help other people do it. And, and then I go home and, you know, <laughs> that's the end of it. So it was, um, that was how we first got into real estate. But I do remember our first deal was super scary. We, uh, you know, it just didn't know if we were making the right move and just all kinds of thoughts went through our head. It's so funny, Amanda, because I, I read both of you guys' books. And in the first one, when you guys sang, well, we are both CPAs working in this company. And then you guys start looking at your own tax returns. And there is this like pivot moment there. They're like, you don't understand what we did after. Yeah. After we realized that. And I was like, what, what did you guys do? Yeah. And you're like, nothing. <laughs> yeah. I did nothing. And I was like, wait a minute, they're humans too, right? So a lot, a lot of us investors, right? Because we're all putting on the same bucket. When we look at certain things or like, oh, I should be doing something with this. Or there's a better tech strategy if I do that. And you're like, yep. But until it's tax season that you got to deal with it, you're like, right. Mm. right. But it was funny to hear your guys' story that it did nothing. So yeah. talk, talk to us about that. Yeah. And it's just a very honest story, you know, because I think people sometimes will, will um, talk to me and say, well, of course, you know, it's, real estate is easy for you. You know the numbers. Um, you've done this before. Uh, even, you know, your parents or grandparents did it. But just to share, you know, we're just like anybody else even starting mm -hmm. out, even though we were in that industry specifically, it was still a shift of the mind for us to say, okay, well, you know, we can do it. It does take work. You know, I'm sure like you guys know, it's not just, oh, I read a book and there I am. I'm just, you know, now a real estate investor. <laughs> and so um, it was the baby steps and, and really forcing ourselves. Cause even at the time we, we realized that, Hey, to be in real estate, to make a lot of money um, and save on the tax side of things, it does take hard work. And some of those things involved work that we were not good at. For example, negotiation. You know, I said my nine-year-old is really good at it, but I'm not, and Matt's not either. Um, so it's really making that decision to say, okay, this is very important to us to build wealth, save taxes. And so we'll take the action steps to really implement change. And, you know, if I'm being honest, even today, I feel like there's more things that I could even do myself to save more on taxes or to better in, to do better in investing because I'm around clients all the time who are doing really great deals. Um, and we're working with clients are on, you know, strategies to implement, but, you know, do we implement all of those strategies? No, you know, for us, even that's even baby steps too, to say, okay, well, you know, our kids, are they old enough? Are we going to pay them this year? If so, how much? It's not just as easy as, okay, I know it, therefore it is, right? For us mm -hmm. to ourselves, we have to actually implement. Yeah, no, that's so huge. And it's, it's so much easier to give to support other people than sometimes to look in the mirror, right? Especially as women, <laughs> I think it's a, uh, we always have great things. So we were coaching someone on Jess and I last night, right? And the things we're saying to her, I'm like, I, I should take that. 
<laughs> wow, I, I have some good things to share. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Write it down. Listen yeah. to myself. Right? Write them down and then make believe yeah. someone's telling me this. But anyway, yeah. Um, so talk to us a little bit about your first real estate deal. And then we're going to get into some like specific kind of like yeah. financial questions, which I know our listeners always have tons of in terms of how to save, uh, you know, they're, you know, save legally on taxes uh, from a, from an investment perspective. So yeah. but just briefly, just jump in, if you don't mind your first deal and how, um, how you got involved in that. Yeah. So our first deal as I'm from Las Vegas originally. Um, and so at the time my, my mom was still living there. I have a, a good network of friends in, in Vegas too, that are involved in real estate. So when we first started, um, you know, this property we found it, you know, back then it was in sort of a bad area. Um, I don't want to say bad, but not, not a great area of Las Vegas. Um, but it was in a gated community. So it was kind of a weird, you know, thing mm. that we found in and, um, at the time, the property was we purchased for around seventy thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars, which now seems like you know so little. I know some, I know some people. We have clients who have cars that you know they pay seventy thousand dollars for, but it was a nice little um, little house that uh, eventually, when we sold it, I think we sold it for just under three hundred thousand. And um, and yeah, it was you know it, it did really well, even though it was not in a good area. Um, our tenants were always really really great. We were really hands on because it was our first property, and um, but yeah. So since then, we so most of our investments are still uh, in Vegas because that's where you know I'm from and kind of where our connection is. But um, we are also invested passively in a lot of other people's deals as well, more on the apartment side, similar to what you guys do. Um, and I love those. Those are passive for me. I don't have to worry about it. There's not much I have to do. And it's just larger deals that I myself don't have the time to kind of take down and manage and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think tax wise, you know, we, uh, you know, we, I mean, we've always historically paid a lot in taxes for me. It's a lot because I come from Nevada where there's no state taxes. And when I nice. first moved to California it was, shocking. I didn't understand why a state would even tax me. It just made no sense. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. But I mean, the real estate does help us to alleviate some of that, um, you know, over the years. And, and it helps us to, you know, the taxes we save, we really try to reinvest that back into more real estate. Um, because like you were saying earlier, you know, this is all for, you know, for the, for the family, for the kids in the future, because you just never know, um, you know, we love working, we love doing what we do, but you just never know one day, maybe we can't do it anymore because, you know, sickness or family. Um, I think for us, you know, I know you were saying just about about reading the book and how we did nothing. One of the main reasons we decided to, to take action was really, um, going along that thought at the time, my dad uh, was alive then, but he was very sick. So I had to take care of him. Um, and just the, you know, the concept of being able to do that without saying, well, I have to either spend time with my dad or I would lose my job and just not have any secondary income was one of the main reasons that, you know, for us at least really made the jump to say, this is very important for us to invest time to build our wealth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the biggest questions, more uh, like frequent questions that we get all the time is about, all right, setting up an LLC for a liability purpose. And people spend a lot of time and money creating this magnificent uh, structure to protect them. However, they don't separate their books and records. And it's just like a big mess all of that, right? So talk to us about the importance of 
separating your business from your personal. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great um, point to bring up because yes, that's probably one of the most frequently asked questions that we get all the time is, you know, do I have to have a legal entity? And I think there's two ways to look at it. One is the tax side and then one is the liability protection side. So I'll focus mainly on the tax because I'm not an attorney. So if one of the listeners were to get sued, they wouldn't call me. Yes. But I think tax-wise, one of the biggest misconceptions that we hear all the time is that um, people are told that you have to have legal entities in order to take tax deductions. So whereas, you know, you might hear me talk about or read in the book was, oh, you can write off part of your home office that, you know, all of us are working from at this moment mm-hmm. or part of your car expenses, certain meals, um, education, you know, subscriptions to um, the investor clubs and, um, and and all those are tax deductible regardless of whether you have an LLC or not. Um, from the tax perspective, all the IRS cares about is that that these are actually business expenses. And by business, we just mean the business of real estate investing, whether you're a landlord or a flipper. It's just the real estate business, not necessarily related to LLC as a business. Um, so that's I just want to make sure we clear that up because I do mm-hmm. have a lot of clients who are just starting out investing. And they're like, oh, last year I spent money on this, this and this. I didn't have an LLC yet. I'm so sad. But no, you can still deduct it. They're business expenses mm-hmm. offsets your rental income. Um, but I love the point you brought up about the LLC because uh, yes, my understanding and working with attorneys as well is that in order to get the asset protection, right, which is the reason you have an LLC, you do have to utilize it um, accordingly. So, so, so we have clients who form an LLC and then there it is. It just goes on the shelf, you know, the, the binder and it's all pretty. Um, and then that's it. They tell me that one and I'll see. And then we say, oh, well, you know, is a title there? Do you have a bank account? So those are <laughs> things that, you know, not just form it, but actually utilize it by having a whole title to your rentals, having a bank account, getting the rents paid in there. Um, those are very, very important things that we Unfortunately, still see missed from time to time. So um, I think it's, I think either you have an LLC and you utilize it correctly or you don't have an LLC. Might as well just not do it. Yeah. Or your attorney might say, hey, umbrella insurance is enough or you have enough debt or, you know, everyone's situation is different and not everybody needs an LLC owned by an umbrella with a management. And I know those are really great for certain larger investors, but, um, you know, you just always want to make sure you have the structure that fits your needs and not necessarily, I don't know, Robert Kiyosaki's need, right? <laughs> We're not all rich dad here. <laughs> no, that's so true. And I think so many, so many people want like the one fit size, you know, like they want it to fit their, like, what's the answer to this question? But in so many ways, you know, when you have your trusted accountant, you have your trusted attorney, they know your holistic profile. You, they know all of your assets. They know of your liabilities. They know everything that you're bringing to the table. Um, in a way that no one else can give you that advice. Yeah, so yeah. don't just, dis- I always say, don't dismiss talking to a professional that knows your situation and also knowing where you want to go. Some yeah. people just want to buy a rental and that's it versus like, I want to like, I want to buy, you know, 50 units next year. Well, that's a little different, right? Different yeah. goal, different set. So that's yeah. excellent. Um, so we have a lot of women who, you know, are, are scaling their portfolios, right? They have like, they have a number of units and they have an accountant, they're working with, you know, getting, saving on taxes, but they get to the point where there's just some nuances. What do you mm-hmm. find to be the people that are scaling, right? Going from maybe a few rentals to a larger portfolio or growing their portfolio. 
what are the common misses that they do in terms of saving on taxes that they can that they can think about as mm-hmm. they you know either keep working with their accountant or you know work with somebody different because sometimes you outgrow your accountant which is a good good a good yeah. thing to think about but for, especially for the women that are scaling what are the misses or what are the things they need to think about to save yeah, I think as you know, um, you know, for a lot of people starting out, right, maybe they, they have a job still or, you know, just to stay at home and they have, you know, one or two rentals here and there. Um, you just, you know, real estate is kind of a side thing. So if collectively, if you're a married couple, your income is over 150000 it means that, you know, your rental losses uh, can only offset rental income. And by loss, I just mean, you know, depreciation or home office. You can use all that to offset rental income, but it doesn't necessarily always offset taxes from your W-2 or other business income. And what we typically see with women who are scaling their business, you know, going from, you know, a couple to multifamily, usually that's in conjunction with switching sort of more time into real estate, right? More time in real estate, less time at a job, maybe, you know, going part-time or something like that. So Mm -hmm. one of the greatest opportunities from a planning perspective then is to look at the ability to qualify as real estate professional for tax purposes. And when I say real estate professional, I don't mean becoming a realtor or a broker or anything. It's strictly just a definition under the IRS, depending on how many hours you're spending in real estate. Um, but before we go over you know, what, that, what, what the definition is, let's talk about the benefit, okay? The benefit of a real estate professional is that once you meet those hours requirements, then that means your rental losses, depreciation, all those expensing, is not only used to offset taxes for the rental properties you own, but you can also use it to offset taxes from your W-2 and business income as well. So that becomes a huge benefit if we're saying, you know, maybe, uh, you know, one person is a a real estate professional, we have a bunch of write-offs you can do, but maybe the other spouse is a high income earner, you know, a physician or an attorney. So now all of a sudden those two worlds come together and we can use the losses to offset all this tax from the W-2 income. So that's one of the, you know, the main benefits or nuances I see when people are scaling up, but maybe they're not aware that that's even a thing, or maybe their CPA is not too familiar that that's a thing. Um, But that's a, you know, kind of a big, uh, a big shift to say, okay, well, now, now all of a sudden my two worlds are, are combined and we can do more advanced strategies to say, well, how can we create a very, very large write-off or, or loss on the real estate side to, to really, you know, bring down our tax rate from maybe 35% to, you know, yeah. 10 or 12%. That's huge. It's funny you say that because I feel when, when we were scaling and my husband quit his job, I was working, uh, at the time I was working as a W-2 and then I transitioned to like a consultant, like a 1099, but I was still high, high, I was making, you know, I was making all the money in our family. My husband made nothing for a long time, I'm joking. But he, you know, we were growing a business, right? So I, I you know, we, we, I took one for the team, he took one for the team, but anyway, I just joke yeah. with him. Um, I was like, oh, you sugar mom. But anyway, um, <laughs> but anyway, I, we you know, love I remember, you, Matt. Yeah, we, we love, love you, Matt. You. He, doesn't, he doesn't listen to this show. It's okay. Um, but, it, you know, it's funny because I, I remember sitting down with our accountant at the time and, and they were really, they were, you know, the one that we ended up firing and then transitioning to the one we have now was an enormous, and the first thing he told us, the one that we have now still that we adore, he said that. And he's like, you know, Matt needs to be the real estate professional. He's in this full time. And Liz, you're making do, 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 you know, and that's going to, you're, you know, you're going to get taxed very high for that. And the offset and the, and you're scaling your, like that conversation we had with somebody who really knew what he was doing. 
And I remember the previous accountant and, and I, I didn't even hear that from him. And we probably paid quite a bit more taxes, at least one or two years. So it's just, you gotta, you gotta work with the right, not all accountants are created equal ladies. Uh, and, and, you know, and just know that you want to work with someone who a has real estate themselves. That's one, one point that I want to make. And two, that they're just, they're, they're creative, obviously the constraints of the law, right? We don't want somebody breaking laws or anything like that. That's not a good thing, but somebody who's creative, just to your point, And, and if they don't know what this even means, <laughs> what we're saying, you know, you almost like bad signs. So you can really, you can really shoot yourselves in the foot if you're not with the right people. That's all I wanted to mention. Cause I remember thinking yeah. that and I'm like, Oh, thank God we're with someone who knows what they're doing now. You know? Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I, uh, I go on uh, I I go on Amazon and I read when people post comments or reviews after reading our book. <laughs> it's just something I'm, I just I, I'm so curious. Like, what yeah. do you think? And um, I think just last week I was reading middle of the night. I was just scrolling and I read someone said, "Oh, I read about real estate professional and how it could save me a lot of money." And I talked to my CPA and I said, "Does this work?" And he said, "Yeah, it'll save you a lot of money." And and she was like, "I don't know why." He never told me. Well, <laughs> I thought he never yeah, told you that. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, oh, I feel I'm that that's that too helped. late, right? When we're bringing to a professional, hey, would this work? Well, yeah, of course. We'll have saved you 20 grand, 30 grand, 50 grand last year. Oh, great. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for yeah. letting me know. So let me pick bank up, pick back on, on the concept of cause um, segregation, right? It's, it's a big, big term. And um, reading the chapter about this, and you know, some people, they, they can do themselves by themselves, right? They can use softwares, they can use other things. Mm-hmm. My question to you, would you recommend people mm-hmm. to do it by themselves? But before we go that, can you just break it down for the listeners? What is cost segregation and what are the tax benefits? Sure. So, so, um, you know, as real estate investors, we all get to take depreciation, right? Or, or as landlords, I'll say. And that basically is the IRS allowing us to write off a part of the purchase price of a building because in their eyes, the building is going down in value as you use it. You know, if you buy a computer, it goes down in value. So they feel like we buy real estate, it goes down in value. So you get a write off for it. But of course we all know that it, you know, generally doesn't go down in value. So nonetheless, the IRS allows you to write off this depreciation, regardless of whether your property is actually going up or down in value. And that's one of the biggest benefits is, you know, you're taking a loss on a property, even though it hasn't really lost money. And that's earlier when I said, Oh, when we have a bunch of losses on our rentals, it's most of that is from depreciation and expensing, not that we're actually, you know, cash flow losing, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the first goal is to cash flow positive and then create a tax loss. Um, cost segregation is sort of what I call like a supersized version of that. So it's basically instead of depreciating the building, maybe over 27 and a half years, um, you have a, a cost segregation firm or engineering firm to go in and break out the components of what makes up that building. So instead of just saying, hey, here's my office building, we say, well, within the office building, there's uh, 30,000 worth of drywall, um, 10,000 worth of flooring, 6,000 worth of cabinetry. And when they do, after they do the breakouts, then um, your CPA can then calculate faster depreciation. So instead of writing everything off slowly over the next 27 years, 
we're trying to write off as much as we can this year or maybe over the next five years. Um, that's been a very huge one, especially in the last couple of years and even into 2021, um, because we also now have bonus depreciation, which means that for a lot of things, you can take 100% of the write-off immediately this year, rather than even having to wait maybe five or seven years. And that's what we're seeing, you know, um, industry average, if you have a property you buy, let's say that you bought a building for $100,000, on average, the cost segregation will get you maybe fifteen to 30000 of first-year um, depreciation when you do a cost segregation. Of course, it differs depending on, you know, where the property is and how many doors you have, but, but that's kind of a, you know, a rough estimate on what the benefit is. Um, but to answer your question, Andresa, uh, um, we do not recommend doing like the do-it-yourself or um, the softwares that are out there. And the reason is that upon audit, um, IRS usually will speak with the engineers who did the cost segregation to make sure that they have the paperwork and everything's behind it. And, um, you know, if you're using a software, I mean, for me, I don't know who would be that person that they would speak with, right? So then it ends up being you or your CPA. And I can tell you, for me as a CPA, I know nothing about engineering. I don't know what is composed of any building parts of it. I like the decorating part. Sure. The engineering part, I don't, not so much. That's great. You know, and, and I think with regards to cost segregation, it's not even a, sometimes a term when people are involved in like small multis. And I don't know what your opinion on that is, Amanda, but we really got more familiar with it as we scaled into larger buildings. It just made more sense on that scale. Do you find that people with small multis do it? Does it make sense? Because I, again, yeah. I, we only did it on, on when we started getting into larger yeah. multis. So that's a great question. I'm so glad you brought it up because that's actually a common myth too. Most okay. people feel that way, that cost irrigation is very expensive. I only want yeah. to do if I have commercial real estate. Yeah. And that's not true at all for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, depreciation, as you guys know, is based on purchase price. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, in California, down for payment, example, which is another myth, right? Exactly. People think that it's based on the down payment. Yeah. So, so um, in California, as an example, it's not, you know, you can find single family homes that people are paying a million dollars for. And so that by itself would potentially be a great project for cost hmm. segregation because we're working with a, you know, I mean, the building portion of that million dollar purchase price. So that could be very significant. Or you can even be, I don't know, somewhere maybe in, um, you know, in Vegas, for example, when I had that property it was, you know, $70,000. So that would be one where, okay, maybe it doesn't make sense because the sure. building might only be 50,000 worth. So not much to start with, sure. but essentially we're looking at the purchase price of the properties and also the portfolio. So we have clients who have um, one or two dozen rentals in Ohio and by themselves, each single family is not a lot of money, but collectively it might be, you know, 500,000 or a million dollars worth of real estate. And so if you do a cost segregation on that portfolio, you could still get, a, you know, a hundred thousand or more in terms of tax write-offs. So it is looking at, you know, the entire portfolio and the purchase price of the properties. But the best thing about cost segregation is that you never have to, as an investor, you never have to decide whether or not to do it until you actually know whether it will benefit you. Yeah. Right? So the yeah. first step is starts with the CPA. CPA is going to say, hey, Liz, um, because you're qualifying as real estate professional, um, because here's all your other income, you're still at a high tax rate. Let's look at your portfolio and say, which ones do we think might make sense? 
And then the CPA would send the information to the cost aggregation firm and they can do a preliminary cost benefit to say, here's what I think it'll be broken down to. Not doing the study yet, but just what I think based on your address and the information that's available online. Um, and then your CPA can come back to you and say, okay, Liz, here's what we found. You know, you got 10 properties. If we do cost like on these three this year, you'll yeah. get 80,000 of a, a tax savings, right? Yeah. And then the cost like firm might be charging you um, 3,000 or yeah. 10,000, right? And you say, okay, does it make sense for me to spend 10,000 and save 80 or right. does it not? Well, they might yeah. come back and say, hey, Liz, you know, for this property, you're only going to save 2,000 and the cost like fee is 3,000 then we say, okay, no, that you know, doesn't make sense. I'm spending more than I'm saving. Yeah. And I would say too, what, what's interesting is that as you, as, as we scaled our passes, so we were always work with a lot of, you know, you know, raising private money in terms of our, our, how we got started and a lot of passive investors over the years. And as, as we get into larger buildings, a lot of them would ask, right. Yeah. Are you going to do a cost segregation on this building? Right. So, so sometimes your passive investors who could be somewhat either accredited, sophisticated, they're around, they know what's going on when, when it comes to large multis and commercial, they're going to ask you. So you want to be ahead of the curve, right? You want to be proactive and have already done your due diligence, right? They shouldn't be saying to you, Hey, are you going to do cost segregation? <laughs> you like, know, you know, I'm not too I'm not too Google. familiar with that term, right? No, why like, the person is asking you're like Googling cost segregation. What is this? You know, can you we, spell that? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> we, we, I mean, ourselves, like we've kind of scaled quickly, right? So, you know, sometimes when you do scale, you're, you're going into a different, you know, threshold, right? You're, you're, you're building out your team, especially as you get in from a, you know, a 10 unit to a 50 unit to a 200 unit, right? The scale has now just increased. The game has, has, has gone from like minor league to major league. So, just know that, right? You want to be ahead of your your passive investors, but I can tell you, especially when you're doing deals that are like got to have like a three to five to seven year turn, right? That, in other words, you're you're returning your, these investors' money in a, in a very short time frame in the building that that gets churned, so to speak. It's not a twenty year hold when you have a lot of a lot of uh, investors in, in those types of projects. They really want that because it's accelerated, right? They're not going to mm -hmm. own it twenty years with you. So, right. so, so in nature, right? And again, I'm not an expert at all in this, but I just know from an investor perspective, it really has become a um, a, a really positive thing for them because then it's yeah. like you know they want to show that negative K one. They want because they're high paid professionals, right? They want those returns so they have something to reduce their tax brackets. So to your Certainly. point, yeah. don't just think of yourself, especially if you have, if you're going to be raising money, you're going to be working with past investors, you're going to have equity partners. Keep in mind, it's not just your own benefit. It could, it's theirs too. Yeah. And I do, I, I'm so glad you brought it up because that is certainly a thing we see. Cause I think for us, we see it from both sides. You know, we have clients who are um, passive investors and in syndications, you know, myself included. Yeah. And then we have clients who are um, like you, who, you know, you guys who are syndicators. And so, yes, I do think there's an expectation that there is going to be a large write-off or, you know, some K1 coming through. So yeah, sometimes we'll say, Hey, ask your syndicator, you know, are we expecting a cost sec? So yeah, yeah. I think some of these times your investors, the questions are probably coming from their CPAs, you know, right. <laughs> to say, Hey, it's probably not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It makes it sound expecting. smart though. <laughs> so Amanda, I want to, uh, switch gears here and talk about, you know, short-term rentals. We, this is like a quote unquote new, new yeah. concept, right? I started in 2012, uh, but a lot of people still familiar, oh my gosh, can't pronounce that. Jesus Christ. Getting used to, let me change. Getting I love used when you to curse. I love when you curse on Jessica. Makes my day. <laughs> 
gosh. See, for those of you that are listening that can that are bilingual, see, you don't need you need to speak English right to work in real estate. Here we go. So for for the folks that are just getting used to the possibility of investing in short-term rentals, but they are not completely uh, you know, aware of the tax benefits. Hmm. How does this compare with a regular rental? Is it different? Is the same thing? Or how, from from the tax perspective, what are the tax treatments for short-term rentals? Yeah, great question. Great question. And we have so many clients in short-term rental space nowadays. Um, you know, it's just blown up so uh, exponentially. I'm sure you guys have seen that too. So, tax-wise, um, a couple a couple main things to mention. Um, if you're someone starting out in the short-term rental space, we just, we touched on earlier right now, this year, there's still 100% bonus depreciation. So as short-term operators, I'm assuming most of you are furnishing your properties. So all that furniture and fixture and TV appliance, all those are eligible for bonus depreciation. Okay. So keep that in mind when you're, you know, sending your information to your CPA, don't just say, oh, I spent $10,000 you know, for the short-term rental, let them know how much of that was for furniture, how much of that was for, you know, the supplies like silverware and things like that. So they can take as fast depreciation right off as possible um, if that's going to help you reduce taxes. Um, now, there's a couple different treatments of short-term rentals. Uh, one is where um, for tax purposes, it's treated like an active business, similar to a hotel. So, um, the downside of that is not only do you pay income taxes, but you also would be paying self-employment tax or payroll tax, just like a W-2 job, right? And the reason is they're saying, hey, it's a, it's a business. You're doing more than just renting stuff out. You're also providing services like food and beverage or pick up and drop off at the airport. And um, so that's the active business bucket. Um, but to be honest, we don't have any clients at the moment who are in that bucket, okay? Most Airbnb people are just where, you know, they come in, um, when the guests leave, you know, three days later, we'll go and change the sheets. We might have some maybe salt, pepper and water, but we're not providing any meal service, right? They can't call me and say, hey, Amanda, I need this, this, and this. Well, that's a vast majority of Airbnb. And so um, in those scenarios, it's just treated like any other rental income in that you don't have to pay that additional self-employment or payroll tax. And again, this is where the major, the vast majority of, of um, short-term operators are, is in that where you know the, the, it's less than seven day stays, but we're not offering all these additional services. Um, so that's the, the second you know, main part of, of uh, short-term rentals. And then the third benefit of short-term rentals, and this might be very beneficial to some of you who um, are doing real estate, but not necessarily a real estate professional yet, where real estate is not your full-time job, but you still also have another full-time job. So if you have a short-term rental where you materially participate, and we'll define that in a moment, if you're materially participating in your short-term rental, um, it means that the loss from your short-term rental, okay, with depreciation and all that, can be used to offset W-2 and other income, even if you don't qualify as real estate professional. Okay. So if I have a bunch of long-term rentals, I have a short-term rental and I'm not a real estate professional, but if I materially participate in this short-term rental, I can do a cost segregation. I can do as much write-off as reasonably possible. And that can be used to offset taxes from my W-2 and other income. 
So material participation, unfortunately, is um, not something I can super easily explain, but I'll tell you, you know, there's seven different requirements and you just have to meet one of them. Mm. Um, we'll touch on two of them because the two most common ones, the other ones are sort of very technical and, and boring. So the two most common ways people qualify for material participation, one is that you spend at least 500 hours in the short-term rentals during the year. And that includes a spouse, okay? So if it's Liz and Matt, both of you guys spending at least 500 hours and that's acquiring the property, you know, dealing with management, doing turnovers, you know, all those kind of usual real estate stuff, at least 500 hours, you meet material participation, okay? And you can combine your different short terms. So if you have two short-term rentals, you can combine them and say, oh, collectively, we've spent 500 hours on these short term. So we are materially participating. Is in it these on or in? Like, because you actually could stay there and that, that qualifies? Oh, no. So spend time on the properties. So on not it. your okay. time, like vacationing cool. there. That'd be great. If that's <laughs> oh, go, let's just go try. Right? But you're not I saying that. Okay, should be clear. I like how you think. <laughs> yeah, like how I said, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, spending the time on the property. On it. Okay. Managing, gotcha. rehabbing, staging, you know, gotcha. getting it ready. Okay. And operating. Um, so, 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 so you can combine the short term rentals to get the 500 hours if you wanted to. The other test uh, for material participation, if you can't have 500 hours, okay, the other one is that you spend at least 100 hours during the year on the property, but you spend more time than anyone else. So meaning no one else is spending 500 hours. Um, we typically see those where it's, you know, sort of like a self-managed short-term rental um, where there's not too much to do, you know, but you're kind of the person doing it. Um, that one is a little bit more tricky. I know it sounds very easy. Hey, just 100 hours, you know, should be easy enough. Um, the definition of other people though, does include people that you hire. So that means if you hire a cleaning crew, mm -hmm. um, landscapers, they have, we have to count their time as well. So you have to spend more time than they do when we look at that one out 100 hour mark. Um, but yeah, the benefit is, again, if you meet material participation in the short-term rentals, it's kind of a loophole, right? Now you can use all your rentals, I mean, the short-term, at least to offset W-2 income without being a real estate professional. And that's been very helpful for our clients who maybe are still working full-time, mm -hmm. but starting to do more and more real estate, but not necessarily haven't quit their job yet. So you can't, you know, can't really be real estate professional. Um, so that's been one that's been really helpful to some short-term investors. Love it. I love awesome. it. Awesome. The, the other question I have for you too, you know, as, as the pandemic, you know, through the pandemic and COVID and people at home, uh, you know, obviously they leave, like some of the offices, right, closed for months and many of them are operating and it's such a different landscape right now in terms of people working outside the home. Have they changed or updated any of the kind of like rules, if you will, or, or what you can write off from a home office perspective? Because yeah. I'm like, they really should, you know, yeah. quite honestly, yeah. like I should be able to write off some of my mortgage right now. Like yeah. that'd be awesome, you know, <laughs> or the treadmill that I just bought from my house. Cause it'd be like a gym in my office. Right. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's, this is a question I need to ask our accountant too, but it, that popped in my head the other day. I'm like, this, this should change. This should have gotten updated. So have they updated anything through COVID and what you can write yeah. off and any sort of more, they open the floodgates a little more. Yeah, that's a great question. We're one that we're getting a lot in this past year. Yeah. Um, so I would say, so, so there's a couple of different things to look at. One is home office as a real estate investor. Okay. So as a real estate investor, whether you're a landlord, flipper, short-term rental, if you have a home office you're working from, you can take a write-off 
um, you know, part of your interest, your property taxes, utilities, all that good stuff. You can still write it off against rental income. And again, if you're a real estate professional or, you know, a short-term operator, you can potentially use that to offset W-2 and other income, right? That's always been the case, right. continues into 2020 and 2021. No changes there. Okay. They haven't given us added um, benefit, okay. but it's basically all the same benefit that we've had in the past. Um, back in 2018, the last major tax change, um, the government took away the ability to write off a home office for our jobs. So if you're someone who's working from home for your job, which is most of us, right? Because employer says everything's closed. You can't go in. Everybody's working from home. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, before 2018, we could write that off. That was an expense against, you know, to, to offset income. But starting in 2018, that was no longer the case. They took away the ability to write off a home office to offset W-2 income. And unfortunately, that has not been changed. That has not come back. As of today, the law still is we cannot write that off against W-2 income. Yeah, which is super crazy because that's the majority of people, at least in the U.S., is we're all working from home. And a lot of times your employer is not reimbursing you, right? <laughs> employer is not saying, let me pay part of your mortgage because now you're using your own you know, lights and utilities and, and all that. Um, we're hopeful that that will change. There are talks that that is uh, potentially going to be changed. Now, the main question, though, is when will and when will be in effect? Are they going to change it retroactive to 2020, hopefully? Sure. Um, or will it be sense. maybe you know, go forward. So that's part of the unknown, you know, as you know, we're already in tax season and that's one of the biggest questions, but unfortunately the law today is um, that, you know, you can't write it off. But I do want to say something that I think is a kind of a common mistake we see from investors. You were mentioning like, okay, so now I'm working from home and, you know, for the home office, we can take a portion, right? We take a, a deduction for part of the interest and taxes and utilities and cleaning and all that, right? That we pay for it's, We take a part of it because you're not just cleaning the office, you're cleaning the whole house. It's mortgage for the whole house. So it's a portion. Um, but there are things that are specific to your home office, which we take a hundred percent deduction for. So things like, um, you know, if you have a, a telephone line specifically for the office, or if you buy new computers and laptops and just furnishing for the home office, those are actually a hundred percent deductible. Um, even though it's part of your home office, it's not really a home office expense. It's just the regular business expense. Like, how you need furniture to operate your business, how you need a laptop to operate your business. Those are actually just regular business expenses that you can take whether or not you claim a home office, right? So we have people who you know can't claim a home office because they don't actually have one, but you can still write off a lot of these expenses because you're using them for your real estate investment. That's awesome. So for the, we have on our community a lot of ladies that um, are already getting ready to retire or already retired and are enjoying their life. So they are looking to invest um, in real estate. How can they like supercharge their uh, retirement accounts? What are your like top tips? Retirement money. So yeah, I think if, you know, I mean, if you're someone who, well, let me take a step back. So IRS has always allowed people to choose what to invest in with their real uh, with their retirement money. But I know traditionally we always hear about stocks, right? Retirement money is in stocks, mutual funds, bonds. That's, you know, that's we, everybody knows that not a lot of people talk about using 401k or IRA money for real estate um, because usually the brokerage is, you know, the brokerage firms are the ones who controls your money. And of course, when you move it to real estate, there's no commissions on their end. So no one's really advertising that ability. 
but the, the IRS has always allowed people to use that money for real estate or startup companies, or even notes, right? Syndications, note investments, those are all things we can invest in. Um, but for a lot of people who are working full-time still, sometimes the employer might have some restrictions, right? Might say, okay, Andre, so you're still working here as a W-2, so you can't move your money yet, right? Although IRS says you can't, but I'm saying you can't. You can move it when you retire, when you leave. And so for these ladies that you're talking about who are ready to retire, um, close to leaving their job or something like that, that's a great opportunity because once they leave employment, now that 401k that they've been building up for all those past years is freed up. So they can say, okay, let me move this over. I'm going to roll it out of Fidelity or, you know, wherever it is into a self-directed account, self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k. And then from there, you can use that to buy a rental property on Main Street or invest in a syndication deal with Liz. So then, then you open up the doors to say, wow, what are all the things that I want to invest in, right? Could be notes, could be rentals, could be syndications. Um, and when you do it that way, it's not a taxable event because you haven't taken the money out of the retirement account. You simply changed it from Ameritrade or Fidelity to a self-directed retirement account, both still um, within retirement account and growing tax-free or tax-deferred. Yeah. And, and those folks really make uh, such amazing passive investors, especially the ones that are real estate um, friendly, if you will, and they want to invest in real estate. They, they've been our, you know, just go-to people because they, you know, they really, lenders or equity partners, quite honestly, mm -hmm. they can lend lend out of the self-directory or actually become a partner long-term if really either or it doesn't matter. So it's a great opportunity for the women listening to think about people that you know that like and respect you um, to, to think about how they can lend to you or work with you through their self-directed. It's a it's such a great yeah. vehicle that a lot of investors don't always, I think a lot of them do think about, but especially as you look for private money, it's mm -hmm. not always the go-to place. We think of cash, you know, we think of like, you know, an uncle or aunt that are just, just got tons of money, <laughs> yeah. but it's the self-directed are the folks that actually are looking for ways to get better returns because they've taken their, they've taken more ownership, right. Of their money yeah. versus just letting it park and get like what? crazy low percent they get from. Yeah. Funds. You know, for the syndicators, you're exactly right. I mean, for our syndicator clients, I know a couple of years ago, before COVID, right, when we had events and you can see people face to face, yeah, huge I always tell them, yeah, those self-directed custodians, when they hold educational events oh. and mingles, yeah, those are great places to go yeah. because it's people who are saying, gosh, I want to get out of the market. What can I invest in? From a syndicator's perspective, we call that patient money, right? Because, you know, someone gives you cash. A lot of times they're like, where's my money? Where's my return? But if they're giving you retirement money, hey, it's money they weren't counting on spending anyway. So, you know, they put in this deal. When you exit, they'll put it in your next deal, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's an easy um, way for that to become kind of perpetual investor funds that, you know, you just keep getting over and over again, as long as you've been good at keeping your promises. So yeah. um, I think from a, from a client's perspective, you know, for our clients who are looking to invest their self-directed money, um, one of the, the tips I tell them is, if you're interested in note investment as well as real estate, right? So I'm going to either be a lender. I'm go, I'm also I want to be a lender as well as an equity investor. I would say um, try to be a lender first from your retirement money. Okay, if you're doing both, yeah. right? Not that one is better, but if you're doing both, lend from your re retirement money. And the reason is, as a lender, what you earn is interest income. Interest income is taxed at your highest rate if you were to use your cash for it. 
And so in the retirement account, it's protected, it's tax deferred, right? So we don't have to worry about taxes until later when we take it out. The second reason is as a lender, we don't get the write-offs, right? As you know, like equity investor, we get depreciation, cost segregation, yeah. we get all this. Yeah. And so we want that. We want those losses flowing to us. And as a note investor, you don't get depreciation. You have no expenses, you have no write-offs, right? It's great money, but there's no expenses to it. And that's why it's good for a retirement account because I don't care that there's no write-off or expenses because it's tax deferred anyway, right? So just might as well use retirement money for that. So something to think about if you're someone who wants to do both, you know, I have money, I want to do some notes, some hard, you know, equity, then maybe consider the invest the, the IRA money for notes first, and then using more of your cash for syndications. If you don't want to do notes, of course, then yeah, you, it's perfectly fine to use retirement money for, you know, equity in syndications too. Yeah. And that's why you need such good counsel, right? So if you're like, this is the investment vehicle that I want to invest in or the asset I want to invest in. And these are, this is, this is the assets I have, I have access to, right? Self-directed, cash, equity in my home. You might have all three yeah. and you have all these opportunities to your point. It's not all created equal. I, I love what you're saying because it's such a strategic conversation. This is not like a go do this, you know? So yeah. love it. I love, love all it. those things you named too because sometimes I meet investors who will say, I really want to do real estate. I don't have the money, right? And they're just looking at cash in a bank, but they're not looking at, I have all the yeah. stock that I could sell. I have all this equity yeah. in my other properties and yeah. retirement account. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, no, no, yeah. I do have a lot of money. Too. Sources of cash. Yeah, I, just, I didn't have my cash in the bank, but there's all these other things that, you know, yeah. Yeah. We call those lazy assets, you know, just kind of all these other assets you have that's not doing anything. It's just being lazy and you don't even know it's there. (laughs) Yeah. No, I love it. I was just, I actually just taught a, it's fresh in my mind. So I just taught a, uh, we do, uh, we have a growing membership through the investor community and I just literally recorded a video for our membership. So, um, so that's fresh in my mind. So I literally just taught it the other day. Um, but without further ado, Amanda, why don't you let the listeners, uh, women listening, uh, learn more about you, connect with you, just share where they can reach out with all your great insight and, and everything along those lines. Yeah, I think uh, for any listeners who haven't read our book, I highly recommend it, of course. It was very well written by me. <laughs> yeah. Matt and my husband, Matt. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give him a little bit of credit. Um, a little. But... <laughs> Um, but you can find it on Amazon. It's called Tax Strategies for the Savvy Real Estate Investor. Um, and I, you know, I think that I think um, what I'm most happy about for the book is that it's written in story format. And the feedback I've gotten is that people actually enjoyed reading it. Whereas I think most people feel like, I mean, that's just, you know, pulling teeth to read a tax book. It's like the last thing you want to read. So um, yeah, I highly recommend that people check that out. Um, the best place to find me is uh, our company website, which is www.keystonecpa.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-C-P-A.com. A lot of people think we're in Pennsylvania because of Keystone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's funny. I get that all the time. <laughs> and, um, and you have a, a, a free gift for our community? Yeah. So, well, actually we have, um, so on our website, we have a lot of great free resources, but we also um, have, we have a free ebook that you can download from our site. Um, and yeah, if you just go to the site, you'll be able to access that. And um, yeah, we try to put, you know, new content on there as, you know, as we can. I think, I do think 2021 might be a year of some potentially significant tax changes coming down the pipeline. So um, yeah, if that does occur, I would love to come back and give you guys the latest. 
Absolutely. So all this information you guys can find on our show notes. Now we're going to transition to our fabulous three questions. And the first one, Amanda, is what's the most transformational book you have ever read? <laughs> I mean, I think it goes without saying that, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is probably the most transformational for me. Um, you know, just in all the things that I talked about. Um, but I know a lot of people probably say that book. So I picked a second book. Um, it's a, a, it's a lesser known book. It's called how to build a business, not a job. Mm. Um, and I think Andresa, you'll probably love that because I know you're all about scaling and systems yes. and things like that. Um, that has been really a, a one that I read a couple years ago and I try to read that every year or two, mm. um, because it really helps me to look at both my CPA practice as well as my real estate, on you know how to make sure I have systems in place because you know I think like a lot of other people too the job in investing in real estate is to get the financial freedom so freedom for for time as well and so um, everything we do we want to be intentional about how to create systems so that it doesn't become you know another job that you dread going or that you know it suffers because you maybe you might not be able to be there because of family commitments and things like that so I love that um, that was very. Um, transformational for me just to think that way. Cause you know, again, I was brought up to be an employee like most people, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on some days I still am, you know, unfortunately on most days, especially we gotta like, season, I'm an employee. <laughs> unlearn, right. It's just like unlearn. unlearning it. Yeah. The second yeah. question, Amanda is what's the most transformational routine? No, what's the most powerful routine that you do to create a financially free and balanced life? Um, uh, I don't know if it's super powerful. I, I probably a lot of people do it, but, um, so I don't actually have a to-do list. Everything I do, I put it directly on my calendar. I'm sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm a control freak when it comes to my calendar. So <clears throat> when I schedule things for my kids, like I block off time for my kids, um, you know, now with homeschool, I was telling my friends, I am my son's friend at recess. So at 9.30, every day is recess. We go outside, we play handball, we play tennis. I mean, albeit it's only 15 minutes, but, and so I, I carve that out every day on my calendar. So if any of my clients are listening, that's why there's no appointment like early in the day for me because that's a recess time. Um, and it helps me, I think with, with work too. You know, it's like, hey, I know I got to prepare for um, the investor show. Um, so yesterday I blocked off a chunk of time just so I know, okay, here are the things that maybe you guys want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so instead of having a to-do list, I just, for me, I find it easier because my to-do list, I'll never get to it. Whereas mm. it's on my calendar. When the time comes, this I'm doing it. This is it. This is on my calendar. That's awesome. And last question, which woman famous or not has inspired you the most? Um, I have to say, gosh, I know there's so many inspirational women uh, just all around us. But I think for me, one that just stands out now is my grandma, who is uh, over, she's 91 now, um, 91 years old, little old lady, never went to school, um, you know, essentially no education at all. And she helped my grandfather build a very, um, you know, a very good business in her lifetime. And in, in, in the meantime, she also raised five kids uh, or five boys and one girl, actually six kids, five boys, one girl. And by the time she was my age, you know, in her uh, early 40s, she was already a grandma. And she's still with us today. She loves seeing us, um, you know, but difficult in COVID, but just, you know, very inspirational how you just can come from nothing and build this whole legacy of, you know, business as well as family. You know, she's still the matriarch of our family, even though she's like over 90 years old. <laughs> she binds like our whole family together still. So That's awesome. 
Amanda, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself, your knowledge and, and what you've you know learned over the years with our, our community. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So fun. Thanks for having me. Of course. And we are looking for, for the new, hopefully the soon new tax breaks uh, transformation that you, you can come back and let us know. Yeah, I was awesome. happy to do that. Awesome. Talk to you soon. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to receive updates on our next interviews, go to our website, therealestateinvestor.com. There, you can subscribe to our show, become part of our investor community, and get updates on upcoming episodes. If you like our show, please share it with other women who would benefit. And don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, we encourage you to take one action as a result of today's show and put it into motion so you can live both a financially free and balanced life. Thanks for spending time with us. Ciao.